0: Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by John McNeil, co author of The Great Acceleration, an environmental history of the Anthropocene since 1945, published by Belknap Press. Professor McNeil serves as university professor at Georgetown University. He is also a past president of the American Society for Environmental History and the American Historical Association. John McNeil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brady. Glad to be here. Yes, well, thank you for joining us. I know you've been traveling, so I'm happy we were able to connect. Um, so to begin, uh, this this may seem like the most basic question one can ask about this book, but uh, what is The Great Acceleration?
1: The Great Acceleration is a term that a handful of scholars and scientists now use to refer to the Comparatively sudden and comparatively large expansion in the use of fossil fuels, the human population, the proportion of rivers dammed around the world, the rate of economic growth, etc., etc., etc. That is a handful of... Uh, indicators of global environmental change and a handful of drivers of global environmental change. And since the middle of the 20th century, and particularly in the first several decades after 1950, this uh, great acceleration um, produced a a dramatic um, turning point in global environmental history, and I would argue in human history uh, as a whole. The term was uh, hatched, uh, at least in this particular context, in a conference in the suburbs of Berlin in maybe 2004, 2005, Um, a conference devoted to trying to understand and contextualize uh, modern environmental change. And um, together with Will Steffen, an Australian uh, geochemist, um, I tried to enca- uh, encapsulate, to summarize what everyone at the conference was talking about with this phrase, the great acceleration, which Will Steffen has done a good deal to uh, publicize and which both he and I uh,
0: have uh, used a lot in our own work. Well, you have anticipated one of my next questions. Uh, So so I I was wondering how long this idea had been sort of um, cultivating in your mind. And it it sounds like, I guess, from publication to this conference, um, uh, roughly a decade, give or take.
1: Yeah, but... I, and others as well, have been thinking in these terms without using the phrase, the great acceleration, longer than that. So, before I wrote this book, I wrote a general environmental history of the 20th century, which is called Something New Under the Sun, published in 2000, and the main contention in that book is that the scale, scope, and pace of environmental change in the 20th century was greater than uh, ever before, at least uh, in the last uh, 66 million years since the asteroid impact uh, in the Yucatán. And that within the 20th century, the scale, scope, and pace of environmental change uh, ramped up substantially in the middle of the century. So that right there, which is not necessarily an idea original with me, uh, is the concept of the Great Acceleration without the term the Great Acceleration And I say this is not necessarily original with me because a Swiss climate historian named Christian Pfister had sometime in the 1990s written a piece uh, called the 1950s Syndrome, which was originally published in German but I'm pretty sure it was translated into English. And his argument is confined to Europe, but he makes the case, and I found it a very persuasive case, that particularly with the advent of cheap oil in Europe in the 1950s, that uh, environmental history was entering a new era. He made the argument only for Europe. I made the argument globally, and a lot of natural scientists who pay attention to variables such as uh, atmospheric chemistry or ocean chemistry, they uh, tend to see this as a global matter as well.
0: Yes, and I would argue that uh, The Great Acceleration, your book, uh, makes that argument pretty persuasively. Um, I was actually going to ask you about uh, connections between this book and um, your earlier work, including uh, Something New Under the Sun. So, so thank you for, again, anticipating that. <laughs> because to me, there are obviously some strong connections, um, even if you sort of drill down um, in this book in a way that uh, that book is, is certainly more expansive.
1: Yeah, the Great Acceleration book, it's only half the size of something new under the sun, it deals, of course, with the second half of the 20th century in close detail rather than trying to deal with the entire 20th century. So I guess it's uh, (coughs) appropriate that it should be only half as long. But it also wrestles with conceptual matters that do not appear in something new under the sun. And one of those is the concept of the great acceleration. And the other one, a related one, is the concept of the Anthropocene, which is something that I've been wrestling with in one manner or another uh, for 15 years or so.
0: Right, so... Um... I've heard many definitions of the Anthropocene. Uh, so what is your working definition? And um, you argue that the Anthropocene jump-started the Great Acceleration. Um, so how, how did it?
1: The, that the Great Acceleration jump-started the Anthropocene. So as I see it, the Great Acceleration is
0: uh,
1: a briefer interval in time beginning around 1945 or 1950, but in some respects uh, already ending late in the 20th century and in other respects uh, coming to an end in the 21st century. So for example, the rate of uh, sulfur dioxide emissions into the atmosphere uh, tailed off in the late 20th century the uh, rate of chlorofluorocarbon emissions uh, into the atmosphere is tailing off in the early 21st century, which is good news for the ozone hole. And there are a handful of either indicators of global environmental change or drivers behind global environmental change that seem to be tailing off. And so the concept of the Great Acceleration, I think, uh, is going to be confined to a certain moment uh, of history in the 20th and 21st century. The Anthropocene, on the other hand, I conceive of as an interval of geological time, which began Uh, in my view, at the same time as the great acceleration began in the middle of the 20th century. But the Anthropocene, as I write in this book, is set to continue. That is the signature uh, of uh, human activity that has altered fundamentally atmospheric chemistry, oceanic chemistry, climate, and a whole lot of other things, that signature is going to endure not just for another few decades, but for thousands and probably millions of years. And so in that sense, the Anthropocene is uh, a, a much longer span, or looks likely to be a much longer span of time. And it's also time in a different register. It is uh, a geological interval uh, rather than, as I see it, strictly a historical interview, interval. Now, that said, there are plenty of people who think that the Anthropocene should not be understood as a geological interval of time and want to claim it as something else. I don't go along with that. I feel that the suffix C-E-N-E belongs to the geologists uh, and the rest of us are not at liberty to um, hijack it for our own purposes. But uh, I recognize that a lot of smart people uh, see it differently.
0: Indeed. Um, I, I think that's an important distinction, sort of how historians view time and how geologists view time. Um, so so I, I, I guess I will ask you, um, so, so how do you think your work on this book and um, your work elsewhere uh, has been influenced by the geologists that you have been interacting with um, through the Anthropocene Working Group, Um, And and how has it shaped your thinking about time, about how we understand the Earth's um, climate and its changes, um, and then ultimately uh, human impacts on the environment?
1: So I've been working with geologists, most of them stratigraphers, which is a subset of geologists who are concerned with the strata uh, in the rock and ice uh, the strata that provide the vocabulary for the geological time scale. I've been working with them in the Anthropocene Working Group uh, for um, about 12 or 13 years now, and I have found that uh, highly instructive, fun, and interesting. It has, not, as far as I can tell, not changed my outlook on things all that much. But I think it may have uh, tipped me in the direction that I alluded to just a moment ago, uh, in in which I'm prepared to uh, go with the geologists on defining the Anthropocene. Actually, I should say more precisely, go with that subset of geologists uh, who believe the Anthropocene should be formally recognized in the geological timescale. There are plenty of geologists who oppose the idea vigorously. But I am with those uh, who think it should be officially recognized within the profession of geology, and that, as I said a moment ago, it is their prerogative, the geologists, to give it definition. And those of us in the social sciences and humanities uh, are not uh, <laughs> at liberty to designate a an interval of geological time as we see fit. And if I were not working with the Anthropocene Working Group, had not developed considerable respect for their Methods and outlooks, uh, perhaps I would see the matter differently and feel more comfortable with the great diversity of Anthropocenes that are now out there in the social sciences and the humanities. In that case, excuse me, in that sense, you can say I'm a a traitor to my humanistic uh, training uh, and have drunk the stratigrapher's Kool-Aid.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that comes across uh, in this book, um, but I, I think it comes across more as a challenge to um, humanities scholars, to social sciences, uh, scientists, I should say, um, to really consider the Anthropocene, but also just environmental issues, climate issues in their work, and not sort of either set it aside as something they can't engage with or something they choose not to engage with?
1: Well, I hope it uh, has that effect. I've certainly convinced myself over the last 20 or 30 years that uh, historians and social scientists need to take the global environment seriously into account and not pretend that um, humankind is uh, a subject unto itself divorced from the web of life on Earth and from the biogeochemical processes and cycles on Earth. In some respects, uh, I think all of uh, humanism from the the Renaissance forward uh, has um, ill-prepared us for the kind of scholarship and science that we now desperately need, by which I mean the original humanism of the 15th and 16th century in, in, in Europe uh, essentially claimed Uh, Human sovereignty over human affairs, that is, it portrayed matters not uh, simply, not strictly, not exclusively in terms of divine will, but found responsibility and agency uh, within human individuals, groups, and communities. And that's great. I'm all for that. But it's not enough, that would be my point, Uh, because it separates out humankind from uh, all other life and from the global environment. And that, to me, uh, is inadequate and sort of the original sin of humanism.
0: Indeed, I, I tend to agree with that assessment, um, which, which leads me to a question that I, I had at the end of the interview, but I think is appropriate now. Um, so, so you're an environmental historian, you're a historian, I would argue you are, at this point, you're an interdisciplinary scholar who works within two you know, distinct parts of Georgetown. Um, so, so do you think uh, we will reach a time when the relationship between humans and our environments will be seen as integral Um, in this case, uh, in all histories, uh, so that environmental history is no longer really a necessary subfield?
1: No time soon. I say that because I've been in academia for several decades now, and um, it's not an easy arena to revolutionize A strong respect for tradition, uh, what some people might call inertia. So uh, I do not expect that, so to speak, all history will become environmental history. And I would indeed say that that would be too far to go. So there are aspects of uh, human history that can be understood with minimal reference to the web of life and the planet Earth, you know w- whether or not uh, some thinker in 16th century China derived his inspiration from a previous thinker. In 14th century China, that might be an interesting question for intellectual history and it need not have any environmental component to it whatsoever. So uh, for reasons such as that, I I not only think it's not going to happen, but I don't think it should happen. But I will say that I do think environmental history should, and perhaps for regrettable reasons, I'll explain that in a moment, uh, will colonize a larger and larger part of history curricula and uh, historical scholarship. And I said partly for regrettable reasons. What I'm alluding to there is that I anticipate that the uh, climate crisis that we're in is not going to go away uh, in our lifetimes it's going to get more intense in our lifetimes and it is going to shine a brighter and brighter light on environmental matters generally but particularly climate matters and as a result more and more scholars are going to be thinking about making their work more and more relevant to environmental and climate matters. Every generation of scholars is influenced by their own lives and times. And the current and next generations, in the plural, of scholars, I expect are going to be more and more influenced by the depth and pervasiveness of the climate crisis.
0: Uh, Agreed. Yeah. I I guess I I would just clarify that um, by all history, sort of becoming environmental history, I I guess I meant more, will historians necessarily need to contend with um, the environment as a variable in histories, because arguably, even intellectual history, right, um, the conditions around, you know, these Chinese scholars in, uh, I, I guess you said, what, the 19th and 14th century, like there is some environmental element uh, that one could focus on if they choose to. And I think you're right, intellectual history is maybe um, a great example of maybe where the environment is not central. But there, you know, I, 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 I've, I've read recently, um, I think it's what the environmental history of the Civil War and it, it almost seems redundant to say an environmental history of the Civil War just because the environment, um, the natural world was such a distinct element of that multi-year war <laughs> um, that, it that, sh- in my view, should just be folded into a history like that. Um, you shouldn't need sort of the disclaimer environmental history of um it's, it's just like one of those variables to contend with, because if you don't, you know that something is missing from that history.
1: Yeah, and people writing about the Civil War for more than 100 years have commented on things such as uh, the weather and the terrain and the supply of horses and other things that are connected more or less directly to the natural world. But it wasn't until uh, Lisa Brady wrote a book called War Upon the Land uh, roughly 10 years ago that matters of the environment were put front and center in the study of the Civil War. And now there are about five or six books, at least, devoted specifically to the environmental history of one or another part or all of the Civil War. And that's a new uh, development in Civil War historiography, which, when you think that there's several tens of thousands of books already written about the Civil War, is quite an achievement. And environmental history has the potential to do that for any number of subjects that are well-worn and which historians think they already know about. But at the same time, I maintain that there are provinces of history for which an environmental perspective uh, is not going to add anything, and there will always be such provinces.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Um, So so switching gears, um, we've talked a little bit about resources, um, specifically energy resources you mentioned Um, I I would say that throughout this book, there's sort of a tension that is sometimes stated, sometimes unstated um, between sort of a resource scarcity, um, you know, in part brought on by the accelerating needs of a growing human population. um, And then sort of this abundance mindset that's certainly present um, in many human communities and intellectual circles that I'm familiar with. Um, so, So how do you think about this sort of scarcity abundance dynamic um, and its relationship to the Great Acceleration.
1: Brady, that's a big and tangled question, but let me give it a try.
0: You're welcome to take so, that rest on the podcast answering it if need be. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, I uh, would say
1: that uh, a, an ideology of abundance and expectation of abundance does characterize a fair bit of modern history. I would attribute it to two things in particular. And the first of these is the uh, experience of colonization of the Americas, and particularly North America, from the 17th century forward. And for Atlantic Europeans, the Americas seemed a a land of abundance, particularly of certain things that had become often scarce in Atlantic Europe, such as timber. Now, understand, of course, that this is predicated upon the drastic depopulation of the Americas in the century and a half following Columbus and the dispossession from ancestral lands of Amerindian peoples. But as that was happening, and after that had happened, the American hemispheres looked like a land of plenty to Atlantic Europeans. That's one source of this ideology of abundance and expectation of abundance. The second source, which I think is more widespread and less confined to Atlantic Europeans and their descendants in the Americas, would be fossil fuels. I attribute tremendous importance To the advent of fossil fuels in the 19th century, and within that, the advent of uh, oil in the 20th century. I'm not alone in this, but I'm uh, among those who think that the fossil fuel age is an age unto itself, an age apart uh, in uh, human history. And the reason for that is straightforward. Cheap energy made uh, a whole lot of economic activity feasible that otherwise would not have been feasible. It um, enriched large proportions of uh, humankind. And as of the 21st century, has enriched uh, the great majority of humankind albeit very, very differentially, that is, with tremendous uh, inequalities among human groups and human individuals. So that's where abundance and the expectation of abundance uh, comes from uh, in the main, as far as I'm concerned. Scarcity and the perception of scarcity is uh, a very long standing in human affairs. Most uh, human communities for the last 300,000 years, at one point or another, have experienced what they regarded as scarcity, most conspicuously of food, but perhaps at other times of other things. And in modern history... Um, that could extend to any number of things that have come to be essential to maintaining the economic, social, and political systems we have devised and within which we live. So this could be scarcity of timber, as I mentioned a moment ago. It could be scarcities of coal and of oil, of various minerals, of computer chips at the moment. Uh, All that is, um, in some respects, a self-inflicted scarcity. These things are not absolutely necessary. Humans can survive without them, although at much lower standards of living and in smaller numbers. Uh, Lastly, on this head, I'll say that Um, while I think energy and energy systems are the most important driving force behind modern environmental history, I'm also one of those who thinks that the octupling of the human population in the last 200 years is also important. And it's also relevant to scarcity and the perception of scarcity. Although that is one of the variables that I think is um, going to change. It's relevant to the, the end of the Great Acceleration as it was relevant to the start of the Great Acceleration. What I'm getting at here is that Human population is probably going to cease to grow around 2060 or 2070. And probably, not that anybody can predict such things with any confidence, slowly decline after that. And if that happens, then one of the major driving forces behind global environmental instability of the last 200 years is going to disappear. And that might make it easier to stabilize global ecological systems.
0: Indeed. Yeah, I I think um, any reader of this book walks away thinking about energy, um, access to cheap fossil fuel energy and um, demography, uh, increasing population, decreasing population and when the decrease may begin um, in this century.
1: Well, I hope so. Those are the things that uh, Peter Engelke and I wished to emphasize
0: yes yeah, so I, I think it comes through as as i was reading uh, beyond i guess the second chapter um i i certainly dove into those but that that the second chapter where you really drill into energy and population it's just uh, that there was a resonance time if you will uh to that chapter in a way um that yeah i think is is important for me to recognize uh and speaking of resonance times i i do wonder um, as you see population decrease and presumably some sort of uh, sort of large-scale desire for resources decreasing at the same time, perhaps. Obviously we cannot count on that. Um, I, I think about the resonance time issue with uh, various greenhouse gases and how even a declining population, human population, uh, like you already have some of this um, greenhouse, gas emissions baked into not only, you know, future generations lives that we can imagine, but future generations we can't even imagine, you know, thousands of years from now, uh, at least generations of humans.
1: Yeah, to some extent we have, so to speak, already bought a whole lot of climate change and can't give it back. So with respect to carbon dioxide, most important greenhouse gas. We're at about 420 parts per million now, and it's going to be very difficult to lower that in the near future, almost completely impossible. And indeed, it's going to climb uh, almost for certain to 500 parts per million uh, and maybe more. And the main reason for that will will be the continued use of fossil fuels. So, another huge variable, and I think it's actually more important than global population trends, uh, is the future of the energy system and the speed at which the next fundamental energy transition takes place next fundamental energy transition, meaning away from fossil fuels and to probably a diverse menu of uh, renewables. And uh, human communities have struggled with this uh, in the last 30 years, have failed to recognize the urgency of it. It's in many respects, a problem very ill suited to our political structures which are comparatively good they're by no means excellent but comparatively good at dealing with obvious and immediate crises but they're not at all good at dealing with problems that are getting worse slowly and therefore don't absolutely demand attention this week or this year but can be kicked down the road a little bit with only modest apparent cost that's the kind of problem that climate change is it's why it's ill-suited to solution through political measures why the climate crisis is going to have to get worse before we do much of anything to make it better through political systems. could be that other initiatives will ease the climate crisis. Um, I'm speaking now of uh, technological innovation that might arise out of self-interested business and I think that's happening. Solar power is cheaper than uh, coal. If there were no subsidies, it would be cheaper than oil, um, probably cheaper than natural gas. Those are heavily subsidized in most parts of the world. Uh, anyway, all these things, Brady, go into the next uh energy transition. And that, I think, is the most important variable when it comes to the climate crisis, when it comes to the greenhouse gas loading of the atmosphere and the fate that awaits uh, the next several human generations.
0: And I, I think your book does a good job of showing how human populations have transitioned, or at least those that had access to various fossil fuels. Um, they have transitioned from coal to you know, petroleum and oil to natural gas. Um, and I, it's, I think it is worth noting, right? The wealthiest man in the world, last I checked, um, this, this may have changed because we're in a sort of turbulent time, was, was Elon Musk, right? The CEO and founder of Tesla an automobile company that started as an electric vehicle company and remains one. And the company, Tesla, last I checked, was actually uh, had a valuation greater than, I believe, all of sort of the U.S. fossil fuel car companies or the fossil fuel sort of originated um, car companies combined. Um, So the market signals certainly tell you something that maybe political signals do not, Um, not that we can rely on the market or, you know, self-interested business people to sort of save us from climate change. But there is an element that um, consumers, customers, people are signaling that they want a different kind of energy, a different product. Um, And I think as you rightfully point out, there are companies that have noticed this and realize there's both a profit to make, um, products to make, but also maybe some social good as a byproduct.
1: Yeah, and Vladimir Putin is doing his best to help.
0: Yes, I, I noticed there was a, sort of an aside on Vladimir Putin and uh, some of his um, Russian political colleagues and oligarchs uh, that maybe when you were writing this, uh, you couldn't anticipate how it would resonate now. But basically, how they are trying to tamp down sort of the transition to uh, you know to a non-fossil fuel. Uh, economy globally and in Russia.
1: It's very much uh, in Putin's immediate interest to perpetuate the fossil fuel regime, but his invasion of Ukraine is having the opposite effect Um, and the rapidity with which most of Europe is going to move to a basket of renewables, emphasizing solar power, but also wind power, Uh, That rapidity is going to be boosted substantially by uh, Putin's activities, the invasion of Ukraine and the suspension of uh, oil and natural gas trade to uh, all of Europe. And once that happens, it's going to happen faster than anybody would have supposed prior to February of this year. Once that happens, once uh, the majority of energy in some substantial European countries comes from a basket of renewables, I think that's going to make it easier for other parts of the world to do the same thing. Uh, the technologies will get better faster. The sort of soft infrastructure of uh, delivering solar power and wind power in convenient, timely, and comparatively inexpensive manners to millions and millions. Once that's been done once, it looks a whole lot easier for Australia, Argentina, Canada, the U.S. to do it as well.
0: Indeed, Uh, proof of concept and uh, investment by some of the wealthier or at least economically wealthier countries uh, can definitely uh, redound to other countries that maybe don't have the resources to make those investments. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Indeed. Um, So we've talked a lot about human beings so far, understandably, when you're talking about the Anthropocene, um, but sort of pivoting uh, you write um, about biodiversity conservation. Um, you say that it is a global norm uh, and it became a global norm in a very short time. Um, but we we did that, uh, quote, by, uh, by basically selecting a handful of preferred plant and animal species living in managed and simplified landscapes and have unconsciously selected another handful of species that adapt well to these landscapes. Um, and then you ask, are we content with a world containing billions of humans, cows, chickens, and pigs, but only a few thousand tigers, uh polar bears, or none at all? So I'm, I'm wondering how you think about this uh, biodiversity conservation paradox, because that's, that's how, how it came across to me, that it really is a paradox, at least in the way that you framed it.
1: Mm. Well, I did not... Um think of it in terms of a paradox when Peter and I wrote those words, um, let me begin by connecting this to the uh, climate crisis uh, in two ways. First of all, the as everybody who pays any attention to these matters knows, the climate crisis intensifies the uh, reduction in biodiversity by Uh, making some uh, habitats scarce and forcing other habitats, so to speak, to migrate poleward as the earth warms. And some species are not well-equipped to do that and therefore will go to the wall. At the same time, the intensity of the climate crisis now and in the coming decades, I think, is going to divert attention from the whole story of biodiversity and uh, conservation biology. It's, I think, going to lose market share in the uh, attention uh, of the human race. I could be wrong about that, but that's what I anticipate. So, um Yeah, one of the big changes in life on Earth over the last several centuries is uh, an unintentional selection process for compatibility with human enterprise. And those species of uh, plants and animals that are not compatible with human enterprise uh, have gotten scarcer and scarcer. And those species that are compatible with human enterprise have typically um, grown and grown in number. And when I say compatible with human enterprise, I don't mean necessarily that uh, humans like them. Some... Uh, Examples of this would uh, include um, rats uh, or certain kinds of mosquitoes that flourish uh, in association with human communities uh, and certain kinds of microbes, not least the SARS-CoV-2 virus that we've been dealing with for the last two-plus years. These are all compatible but with human enterprise, but not appreciated by human beings, whereas cats, dogs, cows, pigs, uh, those we appreciate. So there's a very radical process uh, underway, historical process, ongoing process, with no Immediate prospect of change uh, in which natural selection is uh, now complemented by, maybe even overtaken by, uh, cultural selection for compatibility with human enterprise. To me, that's a really important development in the history of life on Earth. Doesn't get quite the attention that I think it deserves.
0: Yes, uh, I, I think your point about mosquitoes is uh, a well earned one, given uh, your your uh, relatively recent book on the topic. Um, yeah, yeah, compatible as you say, right? It's there's not necessarily a value judgment there, but. Um, Compatible with humans who are shaping the environment in sort of an outsized way, I think is, is how I think about it.
1: Yeah, and humans who now exist uh, in numbers never before attained, almost 8 billion of us now, and that provides a tremendous amount of habitat for various viruses, for example, that flourish within our tissues, habitat that didn't exist a thousand years ago.
0: Indeed. Um, So so the final line of the book uh, is, and I will quote it directly, uh, since we cannot exit the Anthropocene, we will adjust to it one way or another. Um, So so I'm wondering what adjustments um, you have observed since the publication of this book that may make you hopeful about sort of the global response to Human driven climate change.
1: Well, we've already touched on some of them, Brady. Uh, With respect to the energy system, when uh, I wrote those words, which probably in about 2015, um, the signs of uh, transition away from fossil fuels were weaker than they are in 2022. Uh, obviously, from my point of view, it would be nice to see even stronger signals. But nonetheless, uh, the signals are stronger in 2022 than they were in 2015. And as I said before, I regard this as the single most important arena in which humans can stabilize the... Radically destabilized uh, Earth system that, char- that was created in the Great Acceleration and uh, which characterizes at least the beginning of the Anthropocene. So, the task, as I see it, is to stabilize global ecology and Earth systems, while nonetheless living in the Anthropocene. And there are two main schools of thought about how this can be done, and I subscribe firmly to one of them. The two schools of thought are essentially, number one, that we need to learn to manage the Anthropocene through uh, technological interventions into all the major uh, Earth systems. And for example, we need to have the courage to undertake geoengineering of the planet manage the planet that's one point of view and I'm uh, not a subscriber to that uh, the reason for that is I'm skeptical of the human ability to manage something as complex as planet Earth uh, satisfactorily and inevitably as a historian aware of the history of uh, a number of utopian schemes, uh, concerned that uh, a handful of self appointed people uh, might try to manage the planet for their own benefit uh, to the cost of everybody else. The other position which I'm more comfortable with is that the way to adjust to the Anthropocene is not to try to manage the planet through technological intervention but instead to try to weaken the Drivers of destabilization. Uh, We've talked about a couple of these already. uh, And let me return just to those two. Uh, The fossil fuel centered energy system and uh, population growth. If, as I see it, those two things are two of the most important things destabilizing global ecology in the last two centuries, and particularly the last 75 years, then it seems to me it makes sense to focus on those two things and to dismantle the fossil fuel-based energy system and replace it with something that is much less disruptive of Earth systems and solar power, wind power, renewables, Uh, fit that description as regards global population growth it seems to me it makes sense to try to to slow that to hasten the day when uh, human numbers peak and there are ways to do that such as maximizing formal education for females which in decades and centuries past has always and everywhere reduced fertility rates. And it has additional benefits too, at least as I see it. The Taliban might disagree with me on that. And um, secondarily, urbanization, which thus far always and everywhere in recent history has also suppressed fertility rates. So there are ways, I think, that are comparatively benign and do not lend themselves to the kinds of dangers that I see in geoengineering to stabilize global ecology in the decades and centuries ahead, so that the Uh, Anthropocene is a more livable experience. It doesn't mean that the Anthropocene is over because uh, humans have already changed the Earth and its geology so dramatically that that imprint is going to last at least until the next glaciation, whenever that comes. And it looks like we've postponed it perhaps by tens of thousands of years by putting so many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So that is the way I see those things.
0: OK, thank you. Uh, so, so final question. Um, you've served as the president of the American Society for Environmental History and the American Historical Association. Uh, so I'm wondering um, what role you think historians should play Uh, during the Anthropocene, as sort of the climate crisis becomes sort of more noticeable on a day-to-day basis, as um, sort of ordinary folks are wanting sort of a response, not just from politicians, not just from sort of, uh, you know, business owners, but from from scholars?
1: Well, it doesn't seem to me like people with their hands on the levers, levers of power are clamoring for guidance from scholars maybe I'm missing something I also think it's the case that scholars are often not expressing themselves in ways that make their ideas accessible to people in the policy world so There's more of a disconnect there than perhaps there could be or ought to be. At any rate, uh, insofar as historians have uh, practical utility, it consists of uh, some of the following. One, we can show that The way things are is not necessarily the way that things must be because at other times things have been different. And for people who are completely ignorant of history, which uh, is perhaps too many people, accepting what is as what necessarily must be uh, is easier. And people with a broader acquaintance with history uh, have an advantage uh, in that respect, an advantage in uh, imagination. So historians can serve a purpose by uh, sharing that uh, imagination of other worlds uh, with people whose... Own acquaintance with history doesn't make that easy for them. On top of that, uh, historians can offer a number of uh, cautionary tales. As I was saying a moment ago, one of the reasons that I am skeptical about uh, trying to geoengineer our planet is that As I put it before, I'm aware of various utopian schemes that have turned out rather uh, unhappily for most people involved. And as a historian, I am a deep believer in the law of unintended consequences. I think most historians are uh, because of what they study. And so prospects such as geoengineering to anyone with a historical education looks dangerous and doubtful because we would expect lots of other things to happen that were not expected and might very well be uh, unwelcome. So, um, cautionary tales uh, are something else that historians are good at. And of course, um, historians are um, attuned to issues of uh, context and uh, complexity. Which I think is an advantage and something that perhaps we could share uh, to the advantage of uh, other communities as well. So when speaking about, for example, uh, energy transitions, uh, historians are aware that energy transitions have never been fast. And they necessarily involve uh, connections to uh, social, economic, ideological, political, and other systems. And so there's a great deal of um, either preparatory work or simultaneous work that has to go on. Uh, to make an energy transition happen. And you wouldn't necessarily understand that if you didn't pay attention to the transitions from uh, biomass to coal energy, the transitions from uh, coal to oil, most of which have been accretions more than replacements uh, in human history. And yet this time, what is clearly needed is not so much an accretion, not adding various renewables on top of the fossil fuel-centered energy regime, but a replacement of the fossil fuel-centered energy regime by something else. So that's an even more complex Uh, energy transition than the ones evident uh, in the historical record. I think it would make sense for historians to try to explain that and the the complexities and underlying necessities of the energy transition that is so urgent in the 21st century. Yes, well,
0: I I think thinking complexly is one of those skills that hopefully you learn early in life, um, but as you suggest, not everybody has, and then throwing in sort of the law of unintended consequences just makes things even more complex. Um, That said, I think your book clearly articulates uh, what The Great Acceleration was and is, and sort of the context for the Anthropocene. And I think you and your co-author have done a wonderful job of um, writing a book that I, I think I could actually hand to people who aren't sort of in the academic spaces I spent much of my time in. I think I could give this book to, you know, people in my family or friends. Um, so one, well done. And two, thank you. Because that that's a real gift to be able to give folks in your life a book um, that is complex, but also really, I think, uh, sheds light on some issues that are maybe not as well understood as they could be.
1: Well, Brady, I hope if you give it to them, that they read it
0: and that they like it. (laughs) I I think so. I'm usually a good, good I don't want to say salesperson, but I'm persuasive when there's something that I have read or that I've seen or listened to that I really like. So so I'll let you know how that goes. Um, But with that, uh, John McNeil, I thank you for joining me today. Sure thing, Brady. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, And this concludes another episode of the New Books Network.